I must confess, I am a miserable person to go shopping with. I don't know what I'm going to do in 10 years when I have three teenage daughters. I hope you guys are praying for me. (laughs) Because one of my pet peeves, one thing that I am sure will be provoked, (laughs) is when people are saying that they're saving money when they're really spending money. Especially if they're spending my money. (laughs) And and it it sounds like this, you know, hey, I just got this bag. I went on this day. I used this coupon and I saved, I don't know, $50. No, you did not. You have $100 less than you had in the bank before. You spent money, not saved money. By definition, that's a lie. And look, it's one thing if you're going to go buy groceries and there's a sale and the grapes are less than you were intending on spending. That's not what I'm saying here. It's entirely another thing if you were going to buy a bag that you weren't going to buy in the first place. It just so happened to be there. Oh, but I saved. Again, no, you didn't. It is interesting, though, that they get you, these places, they get you to spend money, but you think that you're saving. Isn't that interesting? You're even using the words. It's a psychological trick these places employ on you, getting you to think you're doing one thing when really you're doing another. Isn't that interesting? Turning a negative financial interaction into a positive one in the words that you're using. Now, I'm not saying that they're lying to you or being evil towards you, at least necessarily, but they are being very clever. And you need to keep that in mind when you go to your favorite mall or your favorite outlet, digitally or in person, to make sure that you're not being taken advantage of. Again, you can see why I'm a miserable person to take to the mall, right? Can can we just take a moment to have some pity on my wife who has endured rants like this far too many, far too often? Imagine living with me, goodness. But fortunately for everybody here today, this is not the reason why we're here. This is not what I really want to talk about. Um, You know, what I do want to do is biblically caution us to also not be hoodwinked by clever deception. Clever changing of words, because there's a far worse spiritual deception that takes place all the time. So I want to do something a little bit different today, as we're kind of taking a break through our verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew right now. Uh, With all that being said, please grab your Bibles again and turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. It's only page 3 in the Pew Bibles, it won't be hard to find, I promise. Our prior readings will relate to where we're going to go later. I'm going to circle back to those verses. But I want to start by looking at perhaps the worst deception of all time. Understand why it happened and learn to see what they missed in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, uh, I am sure of one thing. Adam and Eve did not wake up that morning and suddenly decide, you know what will be a great thing to do today? Let's bring sin, death, destruction, warfare, and potentially eternal separation from God into the world. That sounds like a great way to start the day. I am confident they weren't. Had the reality of that even crossed their minds, they would have run to the hills, assuming that there's hills in Eden, of course, but... But the point, they wouldn't have entertained it for a moment. But rather, Satan, through the serpent, conducted a deception campaign. One that he is still doing today. You know, the enemy of our souls has been around for a long time. But amazingly, he still does the same bag of tricks. We ought not to be unaware of them. And first of all, and this could be its own sermon series, he attacked the authority and integrity of God's word. Oh, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Comes right out and questions God. And first of all, he lied about what it says. You know, he did not say that God um, you said, didn't say you shall not eat of any tree. You know, and Eve points it out that That's not what God said. They were allowed to do all of that, just not one particular tree. And to this day, there are still all kinds of lies about what God has and has not actually said, proliferating throughout our culture. You know, did God actually say that homosexuality is wrong? Did God actually say that he only made them male and female? God's word is clear on these things, but the problem is since Christians know their Bibles less and less, and we're reading them less and less, we're trusting them less and less. Now, Satan doesn't even need to attack it anymore. He just sends his lies out into the culture and confuses so many. And his lies are being unchallenged. So to give an an additional sermon in one little sentence, know and trust your Bibles, my friend. Because the person who knows the word is going to be harder to deceive in these changing and troubling times. However, that's, that wasn't what happened in Genesis 3. You know, Eve was hardly ignorant of this simple law that God had given. She recites it herself. So what happened here? You see, Satan didn't just lie about what God did and did not say. But he made her to believe, oh, Eve, you're missing out. If you don't act now, you're going to miss out on an opportunity to be like God. See what it said in verse 5, as it says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and a delight to the eyes, 
and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Do you hear that subtle deception taking place? Oh, don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to be wise? Why would God hold out on you like this? Don't you want the best in life? Why would God hold you back from the best? You should experience this thing. Do you hear the slither of deception in those words? Perhaps for some of us, it's hearing those words is a little too close for comfort. I imagine many of us have heard or felt that type of temptation. Because all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus are fighting against this push of the devil. And that's how he comes for us. Because after all, the root of so much sin is this fear of missing out on something. This It sounds like, oh, I, des- I do deserve this. I do want this. I want to experience this. I deserve this pleasure, this whatever it is. And it's very deceptive. It pulls at our legitimate desires. But it takes them to a dangerous place. Furthermore, I've been told by people who understand the biblical languages better than I do, uh, have said that the way that this phrase is written could also have been translated that you will be like God defining good and evil. Now, how interesting is that? Be like God defining good and evil. You call the shots. You create your own morality. You define what is right and wrong in your own eyes. Does that sound familiar? Oh, you don't need this ancient book telling you what is right and wrong. You can make it up for yourself. And let me tell you, you turn on the news tonight, you will see people defining good and evil for themselves. And it makes the news because God's law is written on our hearts. We know what is right and wrong. It's sad. Again, it's a lie we see every day. Some things, again, don't change. However, much like when I go shopping, as we see in Genesis 3, there's this bait and switch that's taking place. Satan is saying one thing, but he sure means another. No, Adam and Eve sure know the difference between good and evil all right by the end of this. Oh, they know that God is good and he is holy. The problem is now we have experienced evil. We have this wickedness, this sinful nature in our hearts that you don't need me to describe it for you. You see it yourself. You feel it in your own heart. We all do. And we've all since then been playing God, defining good and evil right and wrong ever since, making exceptions and excuses for our sins rather than repenting and turning from them. However, I submit to you, and I really hope I have your attention just for the next couple of minutes at least because all of these temptations, all of these things we're talking about have this common thread running through them. And it's this dangerous belief that God is not enough. That is the root of all sin when you think about it. God is not enough. That life wasn't good enough in the Garden of Eden that God had given Adam and Eve. They needed something more. God has not provided the best. I need something else. Yes, I'll take that thing. 
Life isn't enough without this experience that God has forbidden. Life isn't enough for me without me being the one in control. God isn't enough to make me content, satisfied, or joyful so long as I have this job, this spouse, this life circumstance. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me except except whatever it is that we're tempted by. This is idolatry. That is simply what it is. Because modern idolatry isn't what we think of when we think of idolatry maybe in the Old Testament, bowing down before a block of wood or worshiping in some other temple to a foreign god. No, it's taking our, our pleasures, our desires to be happy, our desires to be affirmed, to be loved, to be wanted, to be respected, whatever it is, and making that our God. The thing that we put first in life and strive to fulfill at all costs, that has become our God. That is having other gods before him. It's not just a block of wood. It's far deeper than that. So whatever this is in your life is the thing that you will sacrifice for. The thing that you will disregard your other convictions and serve. That is your God. It's not where you are on a Sunday morning that determines your God. It's who you serve and what you serve for. You know, I've met many people throughout life that have lived their life in all kinds of ways serving all kinds of substances, all kinds of passions, and it has complete control of their life. I mean, they will sacrifice their time, their money, their health, their relationships to serve an idol of their passions or a substance. That's idolatry. That's having other gods before him. And frankly, it's no, it's no less of a sin when we make idols in our own hearts of all kinds of things. Even good things can become an idol. Our jobs, our careers, our desires for comfort, our desires for, again, love, respect, and affirmation. All of those are good things. But when those things are in the driver's seat of our life, when that's what drives us, when that's what we plan everything else in our lives around, when those are the things we sacrifice for, it's probably an idol if our life revolves around it in a way that only, the way that we should only be serving and sacrificing and prioritizing first above all else, our Lord and Savior. It's subtle. It's a subtle difference sometimes. But it's profound and you feel it when things are out of balance. I know you do because I do too. And... The worst thing is that this isn't some small thing for us to be worried about. Because when you read the scriptures, idolatry is treated everywhere as a very serious issue. After the golden calf incident that many of you are uh, aware of from Exodus 32, God says to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. And that is the book of life. The names of those who will inherit salvation. And 
Idolatry is literally a failure when you think about it to keep the greatest commandment. Many of you know it, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and with all your strength. Now, some of you guys have known that verse 20, 30, 40, 50 years. I mean, we, sometimes when we've over-rehearsed it and we know it like the back of our hand, we forget the profundity of what that verse is talking about. It's saying that God is calling us to love him more than anything. To love him with so much and so purely that when compared to the love that we have for him with even our loved ones on this side of eternity, it would feel like hatred when compared to the love that we have with God. I'm not saying hate your loved ones. I'm saying by comparison, it would appear that way. That's the intensity of the love we're called to have. And if we don't, we are breaking the first and greatest commandment. The law is much higher than we remember it being sometimes. And I'm not saying this to guilt trip anybody or make you feel or condemn anyone. I just want us to take our spiritual idolatry as seriously as the scriptures take our spiritual idolatry. And if we're honest, I think the Bible deals with it perhaps more seriously than we're inclined to at first. So what are we to do? How do we begin to resolve this problem of our idolatry if it is as seriously as the scripture outlines for us? Well, how does the scripture address it? Isaiah chapter 1 is one of the most blistering chapters of condemnation on idolatry and dead religion and you know just follow, just following all the outward things but neglecting the heart that you will read in Scripture. It's a blistering chapter. And the Lord there is addressing Judah, a nation that has been filled with idols, slow to obey anything God says. And yet, this is what it says, just 18 verses in. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be made as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become as wool. Isn't that beautiful? Even in the midst of all this condemnation, deserved judgment, there's this promise of restoration, this promise of grace, this promise of peace. It's beautiful to behold in the midst of that. And, and do you hear the exchange language? You know, sins are like scarlet, but they'll be made white as snow. Does that sound familiar to you? Does that sound like a New Testament principle, perhaps? You can't not see Jesus in this passage. We simply turn to him. There, there's no mystery as to what we are supposed to do. We simply repent. This big word we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, changing your mind. Change our minds about our sins. Agree with God that we have believed a lie about our idolatry. Believed a lie that everything's okay when things aren't okay. And finally, set our passions in the correct order. Believing and agreeing with God and what he has spoken in our scripture and in our readings this morning, that he is enough. 
that he is all that I need. Not some perfect set of circumstances that I can conjure up in my mind of what it would take to make me happy or a perfect relationship that doesn't exist. And simply to trust that if God hasn't provided whatever it is that I'm tempted to, whatever thing I think that I need that I don't have, to trust that if God hasn't provided it, then I guess I don't need it. It's easier said than done, but it is simple. I mean, that was the point of reading Philippians 4, our second reading this morning, that Paul had to had learned to live whether God provided abundant goods or next to nothing, that he said he could be content. Not because he trusted his circumstances, not because he trusted his own abilities, but because he trusted his provider. That's a big difference. Because the same provider who's taking care of you when you have plenty is the provider who's taking care of you when you have just enough to scrape by. It's trusting in him, not your other circumstances. That makes all the difference. Wish I had time to unpack this next point, especially on a communion Sunday. But I'm just going to throw out something for us to ponder and then keep going. But Ecclesiastes is a wonderful book for you guys to read this week, you know, in response to this sermon. Because Solomon, you think about it, was the wisest man to ever live. He was one of the wealthiest men to ever live, even by today's standards, by the way. And, you know, I'll keep it PG, but he had an absurd amount of carnal affairs, let's say. And yet, when you consider his wisdom, his wealth, and his relationships, yet he was still clearly one of the most unsatisfied people to ever live. And yet, those are the things that our selfish, sinful passions lie to us every day that we need, right? (laughs) We, We think if we just had more money... More wisdom, more degrees, more relationships, we would be satisfied. But Solomon's life was full of these things, but he wasn't. When Solomon's life was out of balance like this and far away from God, he penned this painful lament that we now call the book of Ecclesiastes, where he laments the meaninglessness and emptiness of a life lived without God. And it is a depressing read before he puts his, his life back in order, sets himself on the way he should go again. Repenting and trusting God. So I plead with you, my friend, resolve in your heart today before you even leave this place, this simple phrase that Jesus Christ is enough for me. That whatever the world, the flesh, and the devil try to tempt you with, whatever you think you might be missing out on, decide now, whatever that is, is a lie. That you do not need what God has not provided for you. You do not need something, whatever your heart cries out for. What we all need to do is draw nearer to God. 
and esteem him as the pearl of great price that he truly indeed is. He is worth selling everything for to obtain. Now, he doesn't require a great price from us. He requires our repentance and a pure heart, but he is worth laying everything down for. Trusting that our readings earlier are true, that said that God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And furthermore, our other reading, that his grace is sufficient for you. His grace is enough, for his power is made perfect in our weakness. So whenever we face the despair of hopelessness or need or want or temptation in whatever situation we find ourselves in, that we would boldly choose not to believe our fleeting feelings, but to trust in God's word when he has promised and assured us he is enough. Thanks be to God.